Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Lama Sultram Alioni. Lama Sultram is an author, an internationally known Buddhist teacher, and the founder of Tara Mandala, a mountain retreat center on 700 acres south of Pagoda Springs, Colorado. Lama Sultram was the first American woman to be ordained as a Tibetan nun by His Holiness the 16th Karmapa. At the age of 26, after four years as a nun, she returned her monastic vows, married, and raised three children. Lama Sultram is the author of the book Women of Wisdom and also Wisdom Rising and Feeding Your Demons ancient wisdom for resolving inner conflict. With Sounds True, Lama Sultram has released a new 10-part audio series. It's called The Empowered Feminine, Meditating with the Dakini Mandala. In this conversation, we talk about what is the Dakini principle in Tibetan Buddhism, and Lama Sultram actually takes us into a meditation, an invitation to become a wrathful bikini. And we get a chance to feel how that meditation transforms us and transforms our capacity to be clear, cut through, and create change in a compassionate way. Here's my conversation with Lama Sultram. Great to be with you, Lama Sultram. It's always a treat and a delight. Thank you. Happy to be with you too, Tammy. Here as we start, for listeners who are just getting to know you, I would love for them to understand more how your own life and path of being a teacher has emphasized bringing out the empowered feminine in terms of practicing and teaching, Mm -hmm. and that being an aspect of Tibetan Buddhism that many people I think are not familiar with. Why was this focus in your own life on the empowered feminine in Tibetan Buddhism so important to you personally? It really came very directly out of my own experience. It wasn't something that I developed because of something I read or even some teachings I heard. It came out of the death of my daughter. Kiara. So she 
died of sudden infant death in 1980. And sudden infant death is sometimes called crib death. It happens in the night. It's every mother of a newborn's worst nightmare. And so I found her dead in the morning. Uh, and my experience of that was turning to my practice, turning to my lineage, turning toward the Dharma. I had already been a Buddhist nun. I already had two children. This was uh, the second of two twins, or of twins, not two twins. Um, and so when it happened, I turned toward the Dharma and realized there were no stories of women in my experience and what I had read and what I had heard. And I wasn't finding the story of the Buddha helpful. The Buddha left his family. I wasn't going to do that. And I didn't find the story of Milarepa, who was a renunciate also, or even Marpa, who was a lay person, but it didn't have a relationship like a mother would to her children. And so I set out to look for the stories of women. And in that process, I also started reading about women's spirituality as it was being developed in the West at that time, uh, particularly in the United States and in uh, England, uh, the United Kingdom uh, scholars. And so I started reading them for the introduction to what became my first book, Women of Wisdom which has a pretty lengthy introduction about women in Buddhism and women's spirituality in general. And then I ended up writing a personal preface in that book of why, why I was writing this book. And I felt sort of embarrassed to write that personal preface because I felt like, well, who, who cares about you? Uh, it's the, these are these fantastic, great women practitioners who cares about your story? But it felt relevant to tell the reader why I wrote the book and why I felt it was important. And so in the process of writing Women of Wisdom, a lot of interesting questions came up. Like what would spirituality be like if it was developed by women for women as are all the major religions in our world? What would it be like? What would the practices be like? What would the attitude toward the material world be like? Lots of questions like that, as well as developing an inspired relationship with things like the Dakini principle and the feminine principle, which I studied for the introduction of the book. So that the death of Kiara, that was her name, was really the event that spurned me into this whole question. I, I was never really interested in it. I wasn't like a feminist. I wasn't, I hadn't felt particularly um, discriminated against as a woman who had been studying in Asia for, for quite a few years. I, I, I didn't feel I was treated differently by my teachers 
But I later realized that if I had been an Asian woman or a Tibetan woman in those situations, I, I probably would have been. But in any case, that, that was what started me off on this tangent that has really defined my life in many ways. Mm-hmm. And you, you ask rhetorically here a, a question that I think many of us ask, which is, what would our spirituality be like if it was developed by women for women? So when you look at Tibetan Buddhism, which is the lineage framework in which you teach, how can you bring to that view? How do you bring to that view? What if Tibetan Buddhism were developed and articulated by women for women? How would it have to be different? Mm -hmm. Well, architecturally different uh, is one thing. Uh, When I began to teach, when Women of Wisdom came out, I used to ask people to close their eyes and, and maybe the people who are listening now could try this. Close your eyes and imagine you're walking into a temple that is built by women for women and the architect is female. What would it be like? What would that temple be like? What shape would it be? What would be in it? What would your relationship to what's in it be like if you were male or female going into that space? What's on the walls? Are there windows? Is it an enclosed space? Yeah, so I always saw something round. I don't know what you saw if you tried that just now, but I I always saw something round uh, or perhaps uh, a octagonal shape and that there would be uh, living things in the temple. There would be plants and and there would be female imagery. And so within the Tibetan tradition, we do have a feminine principle, which is called the Great Mother or Pragna Paramita. We also have the Dakini and the Dakini principle, which is the wisdom feminine and various different forms and levels of that, which I think we're going to talk about as well. But how would Tibetan Buddhism be if it had been formulated by women and for women? I think we can look back a bit to tantric Buddhism in India because there was a much stronger female presence at that time in India. And what we find is a religion which operates very much in daily life. People are practicing within their professions. If they are a jeweler, they're 
carving their jewels while they're doing a meditation and the actual carving of the jewel, they're meditating on their own mind and bringing out the luminous facets of their own mind. If they're uh, a, a washer person, which there were in India, uh, both male and female, uh, who would do the laundry basically in the rivers, then you would be meditating on purifying your mind as you're doing that. There's a wonderful story about a woman who was a housewife and she was going to the river to get water and she had been practicing at night. It seems like mostly they practice after midnight, which is probably when they had time. Uh, so she was doing a sadhana practice every night. Uh, that's a, a tantric deity yoga practice. And then during the day, she was doing her housewife duties. And so she was coming back from the river carrying this container of water. And on the way up the embankment, she slipped and it fell and it was clay. So it broke. And in that moment of it breaking open and the water going everywhere, her mind did the same thing. And she went into an extremely expansive, all-inclusive, non-dual state. And it was her enlightenment moment. So that kind of thing would be present. There's another story that is very touching for me uh, that took place around that same time, uh, which was around the 8th century, of Guru Rinpoche, who was the primary person who's given credit for bringing tantric Buddhism to Tibet. And he wanted to receive the empowerments of the eight Hirukas, uh, tantric deities. And he heard there was a woman who was giving these and could give that, who was the, the one to go to, to receive this. And her name was Kungamo. And so he found her, uh, he found out where she was, and it was in a kind of jungle area. I believe it was in Bengal or East India. And when he got there, he ran into a young woman at the well getting water. And he realized that this young woman was probably an assistant to Kongamo or Lakey Wangmo is her name in Tibetan. And so he asked her to take him to her teacher. And she refused. She acted like she didn't understand. And so he did a mudra kind of hand signal, which uh, made her freeze where she was. She couldn't move. She was just standing there with the water. And then she realized she was up against somebody that she couldn't compete with <laughs> in terms of her powers. And so she agreed to take him to see Lake Iwamo. And to me, that's already an interesting story because of the well and the woman at the well and that, that sense of, of the that uh, depth coming from the well, which is a kind of eminent essence, water of life. 
and he freezes her and then she complies and then takes her, takes him to her teacher. And so when he gets to see Kongamon uh, or Lake Iwamon, she's seated on a throne and she's in a house of skulls, which is common in the early tantric period. Those uh, people lived in charnel grounds where the corpses would be brought at the time of death, and they would actually make things out of the bones, like houses or containers to eat. The skull cup uh, originally comes from that tradition, thigh bone trump trumpets, so on. So she's there, and uh, he requests empowerment from her, and then she turns him into a hong syllable, into a, into a, a syllable, into a letter, she transformed his body into this letter, which is the sound of home. And she swallowed him. And as he was passing through her body, he received these eight empowerments. And when he emerged from her yoni, from her secret place, he had all the empowerments. And to me, that's such a feminine metaphor to have it come through the body like that and have his transformation be actually in her body and have the, her power be in her body like that. And then to emerge like birth from, from her. And that's how he received the, the eight empowerments, which he subsequently taught. So those stories give you a little bit of an idea of how it might be if there's a strong feminine presence in the Tibetan tradition, for example, I think it would have an embodied quality. I think there would be uh, more circular structures um, and perhaps more circular approach uh, to community. And that uh, the tantric tr tradition has, and I think this is also because of the feminine influence which did come in, when the tantric uh, influence came into Buddhism, the emphasis on that this world, this world that we're in now is sacred, that our emphasis is not to get up and out of this world, that this world is, you know, which we hear more in earlier Buddhism, it's, it's bad, it's, you know, it's all suffering. It's, you know, we need to get out of here approach. Uh, this tantric approach was that actual embodiment is path, can be a path, and that, for example, the senses can be liberating factors, that sexuality can be a, a liberating factor, which is a piece that was pulled out of tantric Buddhism in the West and became that's what tantra is but that's not what Tantra is. That's a very small part of what it is, but it is there. And it's part of this sacralization of embodiment and the idea that we can transform these things into a path. And I think that's typical whenever you have a strong feminine presence in a spiritual path. Now, Lama Sultram, as a, a woman teacher, who was trained in your own life by many 
Tibetan Buddhist male teachers. Is there something definitive that you've said, you know, I'm going to do this XYZ thing differently? I may have been trained this way, but this is how I'm going to do it to bring the embodied feminine into the way I teach. Yes. There, there was a decision that I made quite early on in my, uh, I guess you could say, teaching career, where I decided I wasn't going to take the approach which had been used on me, which was to cut through the ego, uh, to try to cut down the student's ego to I don't know, make them egoless, I guess, or to confront their shadow or to transform, whatever the approach was uh, to almost violently um, and, and sometimes quite hurtfully to uh, insult the student or to, um, yeah, make them somehow confront them in a fairly aggressive way. I decided not to do that. Um, at first it was because I was just uncomfortable doing it. And then I thought about it more and I was like, what is this? Like, I really don't want to do this, even though that was the models that I had. And then I thought, you know, I'm working a lot with women and I don't think women need this. I think women have enough of that and just being an oppressed part of society. And they need more nurturing. They need more confidence building with kindness. And so I decided to take that more nurturing approach. It doesn't mean I won't say stop a student if I think they're going in the wrong direction or question what they're doing uh, or something like that. But in general, my approach is more to nurture, to nurture them. And that, that is, uh, I think all teachers, male or female, have fundamentally that idea that they want to nurture their students, but their approach might be different. And I think it's the same way of, of raising children, for example. There used to be this idea that bear the rod, spoil the child, you know, that uh, if you don't act sort of aggressively toward your child, they'll be spoiled. And that's been disproved. Uh, corporal punishment, for example, has been proven to not create better behavior <laughs> and to create deep harm in the, in the child. And so this was, uh, this was a choice that I made. Another example would be our temple at Taramandala, um, I'm not sure that you've been there yet. I hope you come. Uh, but it it's round uh, inside. And I actually dreamt the temple uh, in 2001. It wasn't built until 2008 and nine. But it has the round shape. And I had studied uh, the temples, for example, in Malta, the goddess temples that are actually like the body of a woman. You actually go in through the yoni into, into the body, into her body, essentially. And the body is a big, round, um, generous female body. Taramandala 
uh, has is a mandala shape with four entrances in the four directions. And it's all carved by Bhutanese uh, wood carvers and painted by Tibetan artists. And it's really quite extraordinary, just building architecturally. And I dreamt it uh, in, uh, in 2001. So I haven't been in any round Tibetan temples. Uh, I, I think uh, there's one in Bhutan that is, is a little bit like the Guggenheim Museum in New York, where you kind of walk around in it. It's now a museum in Bhutan. It is a roundish temple, but generally they're square or rectangular as are Christian churches. Mm-hmm. Now, Lama Sultram, you've mentioned the Dakini principle, and with Sounds True, you've created this new 10-session audio series on meditating with the Dakini mandala. And for people who are hearing about the Dakini and going, I'm not quite sure I know what that is exactly. Is that some like beautiful female <laughs> fierce deity or something? Like, what is it? And what does it mean to have as part of my spiritual practice, this focus on the Dakini principle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, before I begin that, I, I would like to say that what I've been talking about in terms of the feminine is something that's present, that's present in both genders. And so it's not just about women, uh, It it is about women, but it's it's also relevant for either gender. And this is true of the Dakini principle is equal number of male practitioners who focus on the Dakini as, as female, um, if not more. Uh, so just wanted to make, to clarify that, that this isn't just for women type thing. Yeah, very good. Um, so, the Dakini is quite, it's quite complex actually. And so there's different levels of the Dakini principle. And the first level is the feminine principle itself, which is the ground of being itself, which is emptiness, which contains or embodies cognizance and luminosity. So empty luminosity, which pervades everything. And that ground of being is the source of all phenomena. And in that sense is considered feminine. So you could say, as as Joanna Macy said in, in her book, she called it the pregnant zero. That it's it's formless and yet it contains the potential for all form. And in that sense, it's feminine, it's pregnant with all phenomena. So that's uh, the great mother. Uh, Trumba Rinpoche, I think, called it the great space wearing makeup or something like that. Um, And then there's the uh, deity level of the Dakini. And that would be like Vajrayogini or Vajravarahi, Yeshitsogyal, Tara. Uh, all those energies could be considered Dakini energies. And they exist at the level of Sambhogakaya, 
That great mother principle is Dharmakaya, this formless, open, vast, empty, pregnant awareness. And then the Sambhogakaya is the dimension of luminosity. So it's pure light. It's not this dimension that we're in now. We are in kind of a condensed light uh, reality. The Sambhogakaya is, um, is a dimension of light, but it also has form. So the Dakini at that level is the wisdom energy with which we identify in order to, to transform ourselves into enlightened energy. Uh, and so it's, it's sort of like imbuing ourselves with luminosity. And so at that level, the Dakini is, is usually ma manifesting as wrathful and that fierce energy doesn't mean that she's angry. It is fast moving, powerful energy. And this is something that I talk about in my book, Wisdom Rising, that the wrathful or fierce feminine is something that has been forbidden in our world. Uh, it's bad. It's the witch and the bitch. And uh, we saw that uh, manifesting so much when Hillary Clinton was running for office and there was all this uh, questioning, you know, if she was slightly fierce at any moment, she was the bitch, right? Whereas if a male had acted the same way and said the same thing, it would have been considered that he was being forceful, right? So the Dakini is that uh, fast moving wisdom energy. And she also moves through space. So the Tibetan word for Dakini is kadro. Ka is space and dro is go. So it's literally sky dancer or sky goer. And why? Because she's moving through space and she's an expression of that primordial ground of being in form. And so when you do uh, Vajrayana practice with the Dakini, in most practices, you identify with her. You become her. You are holding certain implements. You're in a certain posture. You're emanating wisdom flames. Your expression is wrathful, but sometimes extremely fierce. And you're emanating wisdom. You're embodying wisdom. So you're taking that forbidden archetype, if you will, and you are transforming that into a positive energy, which has a definite force. And I think we see this wrathful feminine wisdom aspect uh, in, in, in some of the uh, political activism that we see, like with our friend Greta right now, um, the way she is, she's fierce and uh, forceful, but underneath that is compassion. That's what she's, she's moving. It's like a mother animal that's protecting her young. So that's uh, that level of the Dakini and the transformation takes place through identification 
and mantra recitation. The mantra gives you the vibrational field of the Dakini, and then that works within your energy system to transform it into wisdom. And so that's the Dakini at the level of Sambhogakaya, the level of luminosity. And then there's the Nirmanakaya level, which is our dimension. Nirmanakaya is the, this physical world. In Tibetan, the world is the word for Nirmanakaya is tulku, which is the word that we use that you may be familiar with for reincarnated lamas. It's the tulku, like tulku jigme, or that's, it's a title. But in fact, what it means is illusory body. And so a toku or, or nirmanakaya manifestation is someone who's manifesting a normal physical body. Like for example, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, um, he, he brushes his teeth, he has a physical body, he eats and so on. Um, but he's manifesting that body to benefit beings. And so Dakinis can be the same way. Uh, wisdom Dakinis can manifest in the human body and then they enact uh, acts of wisdom and compassion. That, that's why they're here. That's why they've chosen to be reborn. And that's what they do. But they look fairly normal, although there are certain physical signs and so on for recognizing a Dakini. Those women are not necessarily pretty and they're not necessarily young. And this is a misconception that's also developed as, oh, she's such a Dakini, you know, it's some pretty young girl. Uh, often in the stories, in the uh, old stories, like in the story of Naropa, uh, who lived also in the early time of, of Tantra in India, a Dakini appeared to him as an ugly old hag. And he analyzed her 32 ugly features. And, you know, she had a beard and she was drooling and she was, her, uh, her eyes were rolling, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so the Dakini in the human form doesn't always manifest as a beautiful woman, she can, uh, if, if that's appropriate. And it's not necessarily true. And Dakinis also in the human form are not always nice. You know, they're not always, they can be wrathful or have other kinds of fierce manifestations. And then there's the worldly Dakinis and those are women who are partially Dakinis. They manifest sometimes as Dakinis and sometimes as ordinary women. And they might manifest in a certain occasion or certain circumstances, but they aren't enlightened, completely enlightened, like the wisdom Dakinis. The wisdom Dakinis are said to have the same level of realization as a Buddha. And so that's a very high level of, of realization. So that's the three levels, the empty essence, ground of being, great mother, formless dimension of Dharmakaya, 
the luminous dimension of Sambhogakaya that's not on this plane of existence. We don't see it, but we can visualize ourselves as that to literally illuminate our own bodies. And then the physical level, the Nirmanakaya, where that same enlightened principle manifests in an ordinary body. All right, Lama Sultram, I'm gonna ask you a direct question. Are you some type of Dakini? And if so, what type? <laughs> I don't think that I would answer that question. Uh, I think that that's something that should not be answered. Okay, let me ask you a different question. Have you ever met a physical wisdom Dakini? And if so, what was that like? What did you experience? Hmm. Um, a wisdom Dakini? We'll go for both a worldly and a wisdom. Maybe you could give me an example of each. I think it'll help make it real. Yeah. Well, I think that Khandra Rinpoche is a, a wisdom dakini. Uh, she's, she's a Tibetan teacher, uh, female, and she can be very sharp <laughs> and um, direct, but also very compassionate. She's in, in the female form, um, and, and she's, she's a, a toku, a nirmanakaya emanation. Um, I've met other women in, during my lifetime. Uh, for example, Sanjay Khandro, who uh, is a, a Tibetan translator. I feel that she is a... Dakini, I, I would say she's a wisdom Dakini also. Um, and then I've also met, um, for example, the consort of my teacher, Abu Rinpoche, who was a great yogi, a, a family yogi, I guess you could say. He had four children and he had a sangyam or a, a, a secret consort or wife. Um, and... Uh, she held a lot in, in that mandala of him. She wasn't directly teaching, but she was holding the whole mandala of his, his world his, as a teacher, as a mother of his children, and so on. There's also Chaktukandro. Uh, she is a, a Dakini. Um, she was the consort of Chaktutuku. And she's now overseeing his temple in Brazil. She's American, but overseeing his temple in Brazil. And uh, I find her really quite amazing as a being. So those are all uh, sort of identifiable Dakinis. Uh, there's also people that I just meet and I just, I experience that energy from them. Uh, and it's a kind of very direct wisdom. Uh, and then maybe they, they are that for some time and then they're not. And so that would be more like a worldly Dakini.
Well, tell me what you mean by that very direct wisdom. Maybe you could share a story. The person doesn't really matter, but I'm curious to know more when you're encountering this energy, you go, oh, that's it, that's it. This direct wisdom feels like this. I'll tell you a story. Um, it's not about me, it's about my son. And um, so my son was recognized as a tulku in 2001, but it was kept secret until uh, last year. Uh, which, or actually now two years ago, 2019. Um, however, uh, he was recognized as a tulku of, of Yudra Ningpo, who was a, an eighth century yogi who uh, lived in far eastern Tibet. And after Varachana was exiled from central Tibet, Varachana was the great translator of that era. And there were very uh, intense political things going on in central Tibet, and he was exiled. And then the prince, the, the son of the king, where he was exiled, became his disciple, and that was Yudra Ningpo, who had actually been with him in uh, his previous life, and, and he had died, Avarachana hadn't died, and then this person had been reborn. So anyway, um, that's a whole story about Yudha Ningpo that's actually very interesting, but now we're in this life. And so he's in Tibet. He's uh, at Sami Chimpuk, which is the caves of Guru Rinpoche in central Tibet. He's just walking around up there. There's probably about 200 caves up there. And uh, he's on pilgrimage. And suddenly this woman appears and she says to him in Tibetan, he speaks Tibetan, your cave is over there. And so he's kind of like, what? And she says, she starts to get a little wrathful and she's like, your cave is over there, go. And so he follows her and uh, he goes to this cave and outside the caves there, they have little plaques for whose cave it was historically. And the plaque says Yudra Ningpo of this cave, at this cave that she's directed him to. And so he goes into the cave and he, she, she tells him, you know, go inside, meditate. And so he does that and um, he comes out and then he goes over to this little house that she's come out of when she gave him those directions. And he looks inside and it's completely empty. It's like nobody ever lived there, had been there recently. And she just completely vanished. So that would be a manifestation of a Dakini. In my life, uh, it happened in Tibet also, also connected to a cave where I uh, was in this area called Chotro Terdrum, quite a, an amazing area of Tibet, where Guru Rinpoche lived and where Yoshi Sogyal lived, who was the Tibetan consort of, of Guru Rinpoche Padmasambhava, the one who was eaten <laughs> by 
by Lake Iwanmo and uh, received all the empowerments in her body. So uh, this is sacred to him and also Yeshe Sogyal, who was exiled there and lived there with her consort who was from Nepal. And so I heard that there was an emanation of Yeshe Sogyal that lived there and that she had vowed to always come back as an emanation that would live in this place. And so I stayed up in the cave, I think it was about two weeks. I was there with my daughter who was then 16 uh, and another uh, uh, one of my students. And so we were there and she wasn't there and her concert was there and he sort of took care of us, you know, would make us tea and kind of direct us to different sacred places to go. And then um, the time ended for us to leave and we went down the mountain and um, we, we went to try to find her. We heard she was building a prayer wheel down in the valley. And so we went to this place and I was walking up to this place where she was said to reside. And uh, suddenly this dog appeared, Tibetan Mastiff, which are very aggressive dogs. And this dog came after me and bit me in the leg. And my experience of that bite was like the whole world kind of kind of like the woman who dropped the, the water. It was just like, it was so shocking. And somehow just everything just opened and I, I could see everything with such clarity and the emptiness of everything. And it was like a direct experience from the shock of it, from whatever happened, you know. Uh, and then right behind this dog, was this woman <laughs> and uh, she actually like threw something at the dog and scared it away. Uh, and it was her. And I felt that that dog was her manifestation and that that experience brought me to a greater uh, understanding and, and really was in a way the most important thing that happened to me during that whole time in that very sacred place in Tibet. So those are encounters uh, that I had in Tibet. Uh, that was an encounter that I had there that I, that she was a Dakini and that dog, uh, which was like her emanation was my wake up experience. I, I actually, I haven't told that story for a very long time. I think I wrote about it when I first came back. That would have been in 1992, I think. Yeah, I, I hope it doesn't discourage people from wanting to do Dakini style meditation. You know, the idea of an enlightening dog bite doesn't sound so <laughs> terrific. Yeah. No, I, I wouldn't uh, think that 
by doing a Dakini meditation, you would be inviting dog attacks. <laughs> but it is interesting how these things can happen in ways that you might not think uh, or you might not like the way it happens. I think that does happen around the Dakini that often things will happen that are not kind of in the program, you know, where you, you think like, oh, this, this is really bad, whatever it is that's happening. A change usually, because Dakinis are change agents. Uh, a change will happen in your life and you'll, you'll uh, be upset maybe about it at the time, but then you realize, oh, that was actually the best thing that could have happened to me at that time. And it, it was, uh, it led to a major shift that I really needed. Now, let me ask you a question, Lama Sultram. You talked about in the meditation practice, working with the deity level of the Dakini and actually transforming ourselves into these Dakini figures. And then you described the Dakini figures as these fierce, wrathful beings. Why? Do I need to transform into a being that's fierce and wrathful? Why wouldn't it be perfectly helpful and useful and transformative to transform into a peaceful being? It is. It is perfectly useful um, to do that. And for example, a green Tara, for example, is a female figure who is peaceful and uh, extremely powerful and beneficial. It's just another aspect of ourselves. And I think particularly because this archetype has been forbidden to us, it's like a part of the psyche that has been lost. And that aspect of the feminine, I think is, is important because if women can't be ever like Greta, um, or uh, other women who are standing up in various ways. I find uh, Simone Biles also, uh, she's not so much manifesting as wrathful, but she's very decisive and powerful as a young woman and her voice is powerful. So that aspect of taking charge and manifesting your power and not apologizing for it, I think is an important aspect. The gentle nurturing feminine is equally important. But my point is that we need both. We need all aspects. There's also the seductive or the desire provoking aspect of the feminine as well. And so uh, they say that each of these aspects transform one of the three poisons. So anger is uh, transformed into the wrathful deities, not only female, male as well. Desire is transformed into what's called the semi-wrathful deities uh, that are in between wrathful and peaceful. And then ignorance is transformed into the peaceful deities. So I emphasized uh, and wrote about in my book, the wrathful aspect, 
because I felt it was a part of us as a society that we need, uh, we need her. And uh, obviously this could be abused and, you know, sort of rationalized, oh, I'm just the wrathful decade, you know, and when actually somebody's just being mean. Um, so that's important that that's not the case. But if you're working with it at an energetic level and you're taking that energy that's wrapped up in anger and illuminating it as fast moving energy. And this is the way it's been described to me by my teachers. The, um, that fast moving intense energy of something that is wrathful. I mean, when are we more intense than when we're mad? that we're manifesting all that energy as humans, which is potentially extremely destructive, but also potentially extremely powerful in removing obstacles and in change, in creating change. And so that's why I wrote the book emphasizing that. I could have written a book about the peaceful feminine and the importance of that because it is very peaceful. But I felt this was something that needed to be brought forward because it's something that has been disparaged and uh, women especially have been discouraged from expressing that kind of forcefulness. Mm -hmm. Can you help me and our listeners understand if we take something like anger and we work with the Dakini energy, the Dakini deity, how that anger gets transformed into what? How does that work? Yeah, the, the clearest way that I've heard it explained is as fast moving energy uh, movement, whereas the peaceful deities are uh, not movement, stationary. The Dakinis are dancing uh, they are not just standing there and they're not like just running around. They're actually dancing. And I think that's interesting. Also, this dance is such an expression of joy and power and, uh, and being in the flow of energy. So how does this work? Like, how does this actually work? Do you think we could do like a little short meditation? To oh yeah, oh yeah, let's do it. Pull into something a little more experiential. Okay, so what I'm gonna do is invite you to become a Dakini, a Rathal Dakini. And, and the reason I want to do this experientially is because I want you to have the feeling of it. Because I could describe it, but I don't think that would be as helpful as you trying it. And so what we'll do is uh, we'll close our eyes in this, in this experiment. And so now I've got my eyes closed and we're going to work with the syllable hung, like H-U-N-G or H-U-M, hung. And as we sound hung, I would like you to imagine that your body, whether you're male or female listening to this, becomes a female form, takes a female form, 
that you are dark blue, like blue-black in color, and that you have your right leg raised and your left leg extended, and you're dancing on top of a sun disc, like a, a horizontal sun. And then in your raised right hand, you'll be holding a hooked knife, which represents the ability to cut through discursive thoughts of subject and object, subject-object fixation. And then at your heart, you'll be holding a skull cup, human skull cup, which again comes from these charnel grounds in India, these places between the worlds where the Dakinis often manifested uh, between life and death. You, you'll be holding that at your heart and that will be full of a nectar of transformation. And then in the crook of your left arm, extending to your foot, your left foot down on the ground is a staff. And that staff goes into the crook of your left arm and then goes up to just above your shoulder. And on it are three skulls a freshly severed skull, a few days old one, and then a dry skull. And those represent the three kayas that I spoke about before. And then on top of that is a vajra, which is a, a scepter that has five points on each end. It has two ends and then it has a hub in the middle. And that symbolizes the sacred masculine. And so this staff that you're holding, called a katvanga, symbolizes the sacred masculine. And you will be emanating wisdom flames. And your expression is fierce. You have your tongue extended and coiled. You have fangs and you're full of wisdom energy, of mirror-like wisdom. So now we will sound the seed syllable hung a long deep sounding and as we do it imagine that your body wherever it is right now becomes this wrathful dakini so take a moment and become present in your body and as you sound the hung feel that that sound is transforming your physical body into a body of luminous, dark blue light. Take a moment to feel yourself in the female body. Your body is blue-black in color. It's a body of light. It's emanating flames that are the flames of wisdom. Mirror-like wisdom. 
And the wisdom like a mirror, reflecting all and reacting to nothing. Feel the energy of the wisdom flames emanating from you. Feel your fierceness that is embodying compassion, fierce compassion. Notice what it feels like to have this body of light that's very intense. The fierce energy is removing all delusion, clarity of mirror-like wisdom. You have three eyes, the third eye in your forehead that sees beyond two. You're holding the skull cup in your left hand at your heart, containing the nectar of transformation. And you could put your hand up at your heart if that feels right and just feel that you're holding that skull cup of transformational nectar. And then in your raised right hand, and again, you can lift your hand. Imagine you're holding this crescent-shaped hooked knife that cuts through subject-object delusion, subject-object fixation, and feel your fierceness, feel that energy, and feel yourself as female, the fierce feminine, wise, strong, undefeatable unconquerable and really allow yourself to feel the fierce wisdom strength compassion and that blue black color emanating wisdom flames take a moment to really really fully embody this energy. Notice how it feels. And if you have any anger, imagine that that anger is transformed into mirror-like wisdom. Clarity. strength and you have your consort in the crook of your left arm you have the masculine there with you to support you to be with you as a walking stick or as a tent pole as a weapon to protect you it's there with you integrated noting how this feels, how this wisdom feels, 
the strength of it, the power. Let that sink into you in a way that you can recall it. Then we'll sound this seed syllable again. And as we sound it, we'll allow this visualization to dissolve from the top down and from the feet up into our hearts where there's a sphere of blue light. And then that sphere also dissolves and we'll rest for a moment and open awareness. Down to a tiny point of blue light. And then that blue light dissolves and rests in what's ever present after that disillusion. opening my eyes now and as you come back into your normal body notice how you feel do you feel somehow slightly transformed by this energy in your body does it feel destructive harmful or does it feel strong and luminous and forceful. That's how it feels to me. Thank you, Lama Sultran. Thank you so much. Thanks for giving us that direct experience. Uh, I feel so grateful to have had this conversation with Lama Sultram Alioni. She's the author of the book, Wisdom Rising, and with Sounds True, we've released a new 10-session audio series. It's called The Empowered Feminine, Meditating with the Dakini Mandala. And here as we close, Lama Sultram, I'm just going to ask you to comment on this quote that's towards the end of your book, Wisdom Rising. You write, my journey to and with the Dakini has been going on for half a century and has paralleled the rapid changes on earth, changes that have become more devastating daily. I've become convinced that it is her wisdom that we need now. Why in your view, and in many ways this wraps up our whole conversation, do you feel we need Dakini wisdom now? 
Well, I think in general, we need the feminine. Uh, we need the feminine voice in our world at an equal level uh, to the masculine, which has definitely been dominating for quite a while. So that's one thing. And then the Dakini principle is wisdom. This is different than say outer empowerment of, of women or the feminine that is also important. I'm not, I'm not uh, diminishing that in any way, but I think the word empowerment, like I N empowerment is very important for all of us who are trying to make changes in, for example, climate change, that if we have that inner power to draw on as we are being activists or as we are trying to make change, be change makers, then we will have a strength to draw on that we wouldn't have otherwise. And I think it's also really important to transform the anger into wisdom, to have it as, as we are making changes and being forceful, to be drawing on a source of compassion and strength that may appear wrathful, but underneath it is wisdom and compassion. And this voice of the feminine has, from the beginning of the ecological movement, it's been dominated by women. I don't know if you are aware of that, but that's a natural fact. And so I think it's up to the feminine to really take this on. And to me, climate change is the big issue of our time. And to have an inner practice, and in the book and, and in, in our series, there's a natural meditation on the mandala of five dakini, which really is a very powerful and actually quite simple meditation that you can do as you are a change maker, or even if you don't see yourself as being an activist, still to access this feminine wisdom, which is so important, as I said, for men and women to actually feel that is, is crucial. I really feel it's crucial. It's, it's not just a, wouldn't it be nice if that happened? We have to do this. We have to, I mean, I feel that more and more every day, like this is really like getting to a point of no return. And if that happens, we're still going to have to live and we're going to have to live within that no return with as much wisdom and compassion as we can. But let's not get there. Let's do what we can to turn it around. And the Dakini Mandala meditations and the understanding, the stories of the Dakinis will be a force of transformation in your life, as well as in the lives of those around you. Thank you so much, Lama Sultram. Thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. It was so nice to be with you today. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. 
I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.